I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Joanna Biggs, an Associate Editor at the LRB, and today I'm talking to Toral Moy, who teaches at Duke and joins me from North Carolina, and has a piece in the latest issue, dated the 1st of July, about the philosopher Simone Veil. It's a review of Robert Soretsky's new life of her, The Subversive Simone Veil, A Life in Five Ideas, but the essay is also about the challenges Veil's writing and life still poses. Toral, you draw out some of the implications of her work, such as what happens if we live our philosophy too thoroughly, about the place of work in our lives, and what it might mean if we actually paid attention. Spoiler, it would be intolerable. I first encountered Veil in Simone de Beauvoir's memoir. She was mysterious and impeccable. They weren't quite friends and they weren't quite not. I had the sense that de Beauvoir was scared of her. Is that where you first came across her, Toral, and what image did you have of her before starting on this piece? Well, first of all, I have to say that I didn't know much about Wey, and I think that passage in Beauvoir's memoirs that uh, shows, as you so rightly say, that Beauvoir was a bit scared of Wey, and scared me too. You know, I've spent so much of my life working on French intellectuals, but there was like a kind of... I had a general sense of Vey. I had read the Petremont biography, which is fantastic. And I'd read a couple of essays. I thought, but I didn't sort of feel compelled to engage. So I think for a lot of us, if you gravitate to Beauvoir, if you're interested in politics and feminism, then Vey doesn't quite strike you as compelling, but from a distance, of course. And then I took your invitation to be a chance to finally get to grips with Simone Weil. I think I took 20 books out of the library and just <laughs> went for it. And I, it was a revelation, I have to say. But maybe we should look at what Beauvoir actually says about Weil, because I think she represents a, a, a perfectly common response to Weil. Mm, yeah. Well, you found this section. It's in the first volume of Beauvoir's memoir, right? Yes, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. Why don't you introduce it? Because I can read the section, the paragraph you've done, but there's a brilliant bit beforehand which sort of frames the encounter with Vey that you were sort of telling me about that would be useful to know. Yes, this is uh, Simone de Beauvoir is writing about herself as a student at the Sorbonne. As she meets Vey, who's a couple of years behind her in studies and is at the École Normale Supérieure, which was not open to women when Beauvoir was at that stage in her education. So Beauvoir couldn't even apply to this phenomenal school in the Rue d'Ulme. But uh, Vey was there, but they overlapped at the Sorbonne. And uh, Simone de Beauvoir had sort of heard of her. But at this stage in Beauvoir's life, she is deeply apolitical. She's about 20. She is thinks that anyone interested in politics must be rather stupid. But she had met some people, not yet Sartre, who were interested in politics and weren't stupid. So she was thinking maybe there's something going on there. But she says that she continued to think that social questions were much less important than metaphysics and morals. And the intro to her meeting with they is simply she was thinking then, 
what was the use of bothering about suffering humanity if there was no point in its existence? And I have to say, that's like <laughs> a 20-year-old's position, right? It's pretty inhuman. So suffer away, we can all suffer. Why do we care about suffering? We need a meaning with life, you know? That was her mm. position then. And then she meets Vey. Uh, so let me, yeah, I'll read this um, paragraph. It's terrific. This so how old was would they be at this time? They would probably it's not totally clear from the context, but they would probably be she's only a year younger than Beauvoir, but she was two or three years behind in educational terms. So she it will be nineteen thereabouts. Yeah. So they're really young. Super young, yeah. This obstinate refusal prevented me from deriving any benefit from my meeting with Simone Veil. This is Simone de Beauvoir writes. While preparing to enter the Normale, the training college in Paris for professoriates, she was taking the same examinations as myself at the Sorbonne. She intrigued me because of her great reputation for intelligence and her bizarre get-up. She would stroll around the courtyard of the Sorbonne, attended by a group of Alain's old pupils. She always carried in the one pocket of her dark grey overall a copy of Libre Propos and in the other a copy of Humanité. A great famine had broken out in China and I was told that when she heard the news she had wept. These tears compelled my respect much more than her gifts as a philosopher. I envied her for having a heart that could beat right across the world. A terrific sentence. I managed to get near her one day. I don't know how the conversation got started. She declared in no uncertain tones that only one thing mattered in the world today, the revolution which would feed all the starving people of the earth. I retorted, no less peremptorily, that the problem was not to make men happy, but to find the reason for their existence. She looked me up and down. It's easy to see you've never gone hungry, she snapped. Our relationship did not go any further. I realised that she had classified me as a high-minded little bourgeois, and this annoyed me, just as I used to be annoyed whenever Mademoiselle Lite attributed certain tastes I had to the fact that I was an only a child. I believed that I'd freed myself from the bonds of my class. I didn't want to be anyone else but myself. Right. I am struck now that when you read it by Vey's retort, which is, it's easy to see you've never gone hungry, given Vey's own, she was probably constantly hungry, but from choice, well, not choice. It's, I should say right away that one of the reasons Vey had this outlandish get-up that Beauvoir notices and talks about her overalls is she always wore these clothes that were, as one poet puts it, made her look like a little bird with big black clothes flapping around her body. She had a, a lot of the profile of a classic anorexic, although I do know that scholars debate whether she was an anorexic or not. And I don't think we need to have a view on that. But she was hiding her body. She hardly ever ate. And th this is about famine and hunger. It, you can find so many metaphors in her work about eating, food, hunger. I, I, I do see a pattern. Mm, no, you noticed it in the piece. And as I read, I thought, gosh, it's incredible that it's right here to you at the beginning of this, beginning of her life as a 19-year-old starting to think of these things through. The Libre Propos and Humanité, are they, do they say something to you about her as well? The Libre Propos, I can't off-the-cuff place, but the L'Humanité was the newspaper of the Communist Party. So, mm. And I do know that she was very soon, a few years later, they contributed to ultra-left-wing papers herself. So... I do expect that Libre Propos must be left-wing. I'd be surprised to hear something else. And also, it's interesting that the class thing comes into view really quickly too, doesn't it? Calling bourgeois, bourgeois, and then obviously she herself... Well, we'll talk a bit about her background. What was her background? Well, she herself was thoroughly bourgeoise, but she was Jewish. Not that she knew it until she was a teenager. Her father was a well-respected doctor who obviously had a very solid income because they had, uh, after a while, great apartments in central Paris near 
near all these institutions like the Sorbonne and the Rue Dulme and all that, her mother, Selma Vey, had wanted to become a doctor, but her family, particularly her father, refused her to allow her to study. So she was a frustrated doctor and she turned out to be utterly essential in Simone Weil's life. But we may get to that, but her parents therefore were well off secular French Jews. This was a totally normal position for educated Jewish people in France before the war. They didn't think of themselves as Jewish. The grandparents did. Simone Weil's grandparents would go to synagogue and so on. But her parents only told her and her genius brother André that they were Jewish sometime when they were teenagers. And they never identified as a Jew. In fact, one has to say that she was, throughout her life, extremely critical of what she calls the Hebrew tradition, to the point that that great Jewish intellectuals like Susan Sontag and George Steiner find her obnoxious. I mean, Steiner calls her one of the worst cases of a self-hating Jew. And Susan Sontag says, well, luckily, we don't have to agree with anything she has to say about the so-called Hebrew tradition. She also hates the Romans, but we can maybe get to that. <laughs> but she was, um, she wasn't not religious, despite not knowing that she's Jewish for quite a lot of her childhood. And as she goes on. So to start with, I think she was pretty a religious and only we have to I'll pause here and say one thing that's crucial to always bear in mind is how young Simone Weil was throughout her life. She dies at the age of is it 34? She's born in 1909 and dies in 1943. And so we're talking about a woman who's still, certainly by our standards, being formed. I always wonder what she would have been like in the post-war period. But so towards the end of the 1930s, she has some mystical experiences. And she starts to feel very attracted to the Catholic faith and has many conversations with priests and Catholics, and some of which led to publications. The book that most people pick up first by Simone Weil is Waiting for God, which was published by a Catholic and a right-winger who was also a farmer near Marseille. Um, I have to go back on that. I think he published uh, Gravity and Grace, but whoever published it, the point is that first, we need to say that they didn't publish much in her lifetime. She published some essays in ultra left-wing journals. But apart from that, all the works she's known for were published after the war and so long after her death. And the way she was presented first to the French and then to the rest of the world was first with emphasis on her Catholic writings. She writes about God. She writes about kind of mystical experiences, but she never joined the Catholic Church. I think to my mind, she's like the ultimate outsider. So that we have a sense there of like where she comes from and where she's sort of heading to kind of spiritually. But I mean, one of the fascinating parts of your article is about how fantastically unsuited she was to physical work. That her friends would just break down into just his fits of laughter watching her try to do the washing up, for example. But she continued to keep doing these jobs. And why do you think she felt compelled to do such difficult work? I mean, I'm talking factories and things in the 30s that she wasn't, in fact, even good at. Well, I think that, first of all, we should possibly go back to her childhood and her sort of starting point in life. She was born with preternaturally small hands. Everyone notices it. She was so clumsy, even in beginning school, that although she was supremely intelligent, she was always behind all her classmates in handwriting because she was so clumsy that even 
writing by hand was hard for her. She obviously became anorexic-like early. She had phobias. She could only eat certain foods. She also had phobias like she couldn't touch certain things if other people had touched them and so on. And then she would have, starting around when she was 20, 21, she would get horrible migraines that lasted for the rest of her life. So she was in a way suffering in her body right from the start. And then why does she want to do factory work? Which it was in a way her yearning to share the suffering of others. And the fact that she first works in factories on and off for about eight months, and secondly, goes off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, where we should highlight the fact that she was also extremely nearsighted and myopic. She needed very heavy glasses and she gets to the Spanish Civil War and insists on carrying a rifle. There is something quixotic about all this. But then on the other hand, I think when she then starts writing, it gives her voice such authority. But I, I don't know that I can fully imagine what she was like as a person in the world because this Catholic farmer said they insisted that who had been forced by they to hire her as a farmhand. And they thought that he had given her a too good a room because he just gave her a room in his house and insisted on sleeping outside, which he refused. And then it turned out that this farmer's, uh, Gustave Thibon's wife, her parents owned an, a ruin somewhere a bit further off and it was rat infested and had holes in it and that's where she wanted to live so there was a drive to share suffering but also to to act for what she believed in she was a radical trade unionist she felt it was insane to talk about workers condition when you hadn't ever tried it in the same way she was a strong supporter of the republicans in the spanish civil war hated of course franco and the fa fascists and she thought well if that's what i believe in then that's what i do i go there and fight the downside is that she requires a lot of help and support with her mother kept traveling to wherever she lived. And when she went to Spain, for example, both her parents managed, uh, this was very difficult during the Civil War, managed to get themselves to Barcelona, frantically looking for Simone. And when Simone, after a few days at the front, was so myopic that she didn't see a, a vat of boiling oil on the ground. So she stepped right in it and got severe burns on her foot. It, it was horrific. Then, of course, her comrades need to find her transportation back to Barcelona, where she could have died from an infection. But Bernard and Selma Vey were there and helped her, got her treatment, found her accommodation in a war-torn city and then after a long while persuaded her to return to France with them and in the same way at the factory she held up work on the line she would not make her quotas other workers would have to step in and help her out so by doing this she wasn't in fact supporting the practical work but she she was so earnestly thinking that I need to do this but every time she needed the help of others and then when Thibon says just before the war she insisted on doing helping with the dishes and he says, and he was in awe of they. He admired her spirituality and all this. And then he looks at her doing the dishes and can't stop 
bursting into fits of laughter. And I can't, I mean, how did she do the dishes? I mean, I can hardly imagine what you would do to make someone just every time they look at you do that, they laugh. I, I, I just have no clue. But um, it, it's clear that she was driven to do the right thing. And she took no practical obstacle into consideration whatsoever and she left others to pick up the pieces one has to say did she ever consider that she might be taking a job that someone actually might need was that ever a, a kind of complication morally for her I don't I mean I'm not the world's expert on they but I didn't read anything that said that she does say very clearly because I've seen I've seen a number of uh critics and people writing on Vey saying, well, look, you weren't a real worker because you knew you were only doing this temporarily. And in fact, after one and a half months on the first assembly line, she got seriously ill. She had to take a month off and her parents whisked her off to a lovely sanatorium in Switzerland, which is, of course, not what happens to the ordinary working class woman uh, at this point. But she writes in La Condition Ouvrière many times that she says she's acutely aware of the fact that she's not sharing the full working class experience, but she's doing what she can. And I don't think she thought she was going to do it forever. So maybe if you're doing it for the force of good, as it were, temporarily, it might be acceptable. One part of the essay that really struck me and um, is this moment where you say that you're struck indeed by her loneliness. Where do you think this loneliness comes from? We sort of sketched out a bit of it, but... Yes, I think, first of all, there's one more thing we should mention about her background, which is she clearly had an issue with living in a woman's body because there's the anorexia or close to there's the hiding the body in in I mean she wore overalls and big coats and no hat in the 20, in the 1920s the absence of a hat was enough to shock <laughs> let alone all the other gear which by now we wouldn't find strange but then it was but she also certainly in her teenage years often sort of played around in her letters to her parents by signing off with your son, Simon. And she often said that she would have preferred to be a man. Now, she stops doing the Simon thing by the time she's in her 20s. But I think she never felt at home in any identity, like not quite feeling that she wants to be a woman not feeling she wants to be Jewish and she hasn't been raised as a Jew, loving God but hating the Catholic Church. She is always the outsider, wanting to share the workers' conditions and yet so unsuited to it. And she is an intellectual and she knows that. So in the end, her strongest identity but I should pause here and say the identity talk as we think of it today was unknown to her. And I think she would have hated it given her issues with, you see, for Vey, I suspect it wouldn't have been a solution to define herself as something else like, uh, I don't know, transgender, for example, which is a new identity that is now much to the fore. I think any identity would have been a problem for her. And I think half of her problems with being a woman was precisely she wanted to go to war and be in factories. And it's harder when you feel you have a weak body, which, of course, I would never say that all women have weak bodies, but clearly she did. I think that she was always an outsider. And one thing I want to say about that, and I feel for me that was one of the more the deepest insights I got from working on her for the article was the idea that when I read about Vey, who we'll talk about her ideas, she talks about affliction, about that, which in French is malheur. And she talks about, 
you know, paying attention to the suffering of others. But she never really talks about it in the way that moral philosophers mostly do, that you have a subject, me, paying attention to your suffering as another human being. For her, it's all about obliterating the self completely. So, And that's part of all this suffering she goes through. You obliterate yourself and then you somehow... You become a pure attention to the suffering, but you don't see the afflicted as separate human beings either because you, they have suffered so much that the affliction has made them, uh, what can we see, desubjectified them. They, they are no longer the full bourgeois subject either so that you have these utterly undone subjectivities meeting this is not about identity and it's not about moral goodness coming from me to you. It's something utterly more radical and very striking. As you were talking, I was thinking of um, one of the things I often think about feminists is that one of the strange positions they occupy is both being a woman and, and not liking being a woman often. It's not, feminism isn't always about sort of emphasizing what's great about being a woman often it's about identifying what's terrible about it so we can change it and that creates a kind of odd position I think it certainly happens in Beauvoir quite a lot and I was also thinking maybe there's a kind of fertility and a kind of opportunity in what when you in your piece when you link together her life and her work there's an opportunity because she's not quite she stands between a lot of things so she's able to inhabit different positions in a way that's is quite exciting, I imagine, in her philosophy. Yeah, I, I want to say that as a feminist, I think that we don't have to say all women must love being women, nor do we have to say that it's wrong for a woman to hate being a woman if that's how she feels it. I, I'm very much more interested in the fact that, I mean, as a feminist here, that regardless how individual women experience the fact of their womanhood, it doesn't matter because you're going to be oppressed in the same way anyway, because the oppression comes from the other and it's the other who looks at you and they just categorize you as woman. And then, you know, the whole oppression machinery starts so that in a way, identity theory gets it wrong by emphasizing too much what your relationship to an identity category is. And that's where I would overlap with you again and say Simone Weil didn't want to think about identities. I mean, in a way, nobody did much in um, in the 1930s. It was all about class struggle, communism, fascism, and so on then. But the idea that identity should hold the key to politics would have been utterly incomprehensible to, to Weil. Maybe if we start talking about her ideas, then we can link use our kind of what we've talked about with her life, linking that back and forward and showing how that works for in the example of they, because it is quite str it is as there's a wonderful sentence in the piece where you say so many philosophers would envy being able to speak from the position that they can because of these experiences, because of being in the factories, because of being at war. Well maybe we should tell everybody how she died first, maybe, because that is a helpful thing to know. We should say that so Simone Weil gets the highest education France can offer the Agrégation de Philosophie. She becomes, as they all did, they, she gets a state appointment to a lycée, a, a, a high school um, in Le Puy, which is hours and hours away from um, Paris by train. She goes there to teach. Her mother then is doomed to almost commute back and forth to help her cope with everyday life. Then she, in her spare time, she travels hours, often at night. So she gets off school. She sits up on a ghastly night train to get to uh, the nearest city where she works with trade unionists. She sometimes slept on benches in the railway station. I mean, her capacity for seeking out and wanting discomfort is astonishing. So trade unions 
are her main thing in the early 1930s. Then she works in the factory in, I think, 1934. could be 1935. I have a terrible memory for dates. And then... She, after having done that, she goes, she obviously goes back to school teaching. And in this, this same period, we should remember that Sartre and Beauvoir were having the exact same career. They were also school teachers in provincial France. Later in the thirties, they move, they get posted to Paris. But so this is very typical in one way. But then, she goes on a holiday to Portugal in about 38, I think, 37, 38 with her parents and has a kind of mystical experience when she sees Portuguese fisherwomen in a procession, in a religious procession. So she starts exploring the Catholic faith. But of course, in June 1940, the Germans invade Paris. The Vey family get on the last train out of Paris and after much ado, end up in Marseille. And as Jews, uh, they soon realized that they had to get out of, of France. And the parents and Simone Vey live in Marseille until sometime in 1941, May, June, when they finally get passage on a boat to Casablanca, which, of course, Casablanca was the place, a transition point for refugees wanting to go to America, as that famous movie shows us. That's what happens. So she's in a kind of internment camp with her parents for three weeks in Casablanca, and then they get on a ship to New York. And her parents had, I think, first-class cabins for them. And, of course, what happens, Simone refuses to use her cabin and sleeps on the deck in third-class or wherever. Um, so she gets to New York, and now we're in 1941, and she spends all her time lobbying to get to London because she quickly realizes that to be in America is to be just isolated from everything she cares about. So finally, after an incredible intensity of lobbying and using every contact she had, she gets someone to hire her to work for the Free French office in London. And then it was very dangerous to cross the Atlantic at that time because of German torpedoes. So to get passage to England was not obvious. So she gets herself to England and lands, as most people did then in Liverpool, where she was also put in an internment camp because they, the English wanted to check that she wasn't a German spy and she spent much longer there than most. But finally, in December 1942, she gets herself to London, starts working for the Free French. And we'll talk more about her projects there in a minute. But what happens is this is the first time she's doing something far away from her parents. And it's quite clear to me that she could have died much sooner if her parents, particularly her mother, hadn't always tried to maintain her eating, for example, helping her to get some food into her, making sure she wasn't utterly neglecting her health, taking her off to treatment, for example. But in London, she is on her own. And by she gets there in December, by April, she's diagnosed with tuberculosis. And she's getting sicker and sicker and has to go to hospital. In August 1943, she's transported to a sanatorium in Ashford in Kent, and there she dies at the age of 34. And during this time in London, she had been writing to her parents. And the best we can say about the letters is they're filled with what her biographer calls pious lies. She pretends to be going out and enjoying London. She doesn't say she's become too sick to work for the Free French. And when... She dies, a telegram is sent to her brother André, who was a mathematical genius and was in Philadelphia at this time. And he 
has to go to New York to tell his parents. And they spent the rest of their lives nurturing her memory, collecting her papers, enabling them to be published and so on. Thank you, Toral. We're just going to take a short break. Let's move on to her writings then, because that's what her parents would have wanted at least. Um, Yes, and I can say right away that we do need to talk. I can see that her writings, first of all, she writes before the war about something that I'm super interested in, attention. We can begin with that because the essay is called On the Right Use of School Studies, and it appears in Waiting for God. And it's fabulous. She wrote it on be- at the request of one of the Catholic uh, priests she was uh, in dialogue with in Marseille. And he was using it for, I think, a school he was associated with. And the idea there is that attention is the pathway to God, but that school studies can inspire attention. School studies can train it, and it doesn't really matter what you're studying, whether it's her examples is very much of the period, Greek, Latin, geometry, and so on. But whatever you do, attention will then take you out of yourself and make you more capable of meeting God, is her argument. But even if you don't particularly feel like you're ready to go the whole mystic route with her, what she has to say about attention and school studies is just fabulous. Why don't you read it for us? It's great, that section. Yes. In, she says that the point of studying, therefore, is not really to learn this or that, but it is to acquire a kind of discipline of the soul, I think we could say. And then she says, um, oh, yeah, I should say it's not just geometry, Greek and Latin that she mentions. She mentions specifically writing. She was obviously a writer. And insofar as uh, both you and I write, it's so inspiring to me. She says, just sitting there waiting for the right word to come, empty yourself, just wait, don't push, just be there. And you will know when the right word comes. That That's the hardest thing, though, that patience. Ugh. Yes, but nothing Simone Weil recommends is easy. Nothing. So she writes about uh, attention and school studies. There's one condition you need to enjoy the work. She writes, the intelligence can only be led by desire. For there to be desire, there must be pleasure and joy in the work. The intelligence only grows and bears fruit in joy. The joy of learning is as indispensable in study as breathing is in running. So we have her idea of sort of waiting, attente, But I also wanted to talk about the malheur, the affliction. She writes that compassion for the afflicted is an impossibility. That seems to me quite a depressing idea. (laughs) And what's Vey trying to get at by by putting it that way? Where is she trying to get us to? Well, I, I think that's a lovely way of putting the question because what she is uh, saying is, if you, there you are in your comfortable little life and in my comfortable little life, and if you think paying attention to the afflicted is something you can just do, then think again. Because isn't that almost, I mean, this is me adding, I feel that she's putting her finger on the sort of whiff of condescension that can come with that you bend out of your comfort to their discomfort there's me and there's them uh, you know so she isn't having any of that Uh, but then of course what she's having is so hard to do that it's almost impossible what she is saying is affliction is the result of force I could pause I could add here that affliction Her work on affliction has been deeply inspiring to someone like the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who uses it to understand the Holocaust and Primo Levi. Because affliction is created by force. The sense that, and she takes that from 
Oh, her fantastic essay on the Iliad. Think of a Trojan soldier with a Greek spear at his chest, totally given over to the power of the other. That's a simple picture of affliction. But of course, affliction is also created by capitalism, by work conditions. Nothing was more important to her than to make work, to make work something dignified and respected and a source of joy. But affliction then is something created by force and it strips the person of their life or their humanity. They're alive, but they're now just almost reduced to a body. Their mind is being taken over by this force. So the problem here is if I come in my full subjectivity and bend over to the afflicted, that's not it. I have to radically take in their reality. That means I must empty myself of all of me and truly pay attention. I think in the piece, my best example is, you know, you have, at least in America, the beggars at the exit of the motorway. Someone's standing there, you're slowing down at the traffic light to turn off. And maybe moral philosophy, as they would not have had it, would tell me, oh, roll down your window and give some money. For they, that would be nothing. What I need to do is to pay attention. And that means I get out of my car and I ask the beggar, how are things with you? What's up with you? And then I listen. But then since the afflicted has been, as it were, eradicated by force, the beggar may not be able to explain to me what's going on, because why should they be the analyst of the situation? So I must pay attention. But to pay attention is also to fully take in the situation that has created a society in which some people beg at the roadside. And then if I take in that, do I then go on and teach at Duke and see my students? No, I quit and I go to work. And, and how many of us can do that? Mm, this, this is the challenge, isn't it? This is where, this is a useful spot that we get to with her, isn't it? If we take this seriously, where do we get to? And in some ways that makes me, I, I know that I... You question in the article, say, can, could I do that? Could I get to this point? Can I, my life would be, will crumble around me. And I, I, I feel the same, but at the same time, I think if you don't think about it that way, then you're not thinking about it properly. And I guess that's what she's saying, Ve is saying. Yes, and that is the, that, that's a, a key point because that gets to the heart of why so many people can't stand her work, you know, because it's like, this is not true moral philosophy. No one can do this. So it, it's like, it, it's it, it's a morality for saints. And in a way, she was a kind of saint, I suppose, because there are the lives of Catholic saints have many cases of people living a bit like Simone Weil did. But in another way, it's an ultimate challenge. Maybe we can't rise to those levels because, as she, as you quoted, to pay attention to the afflicted, it's almost impossible. It's impossible. It's a miracle if it happens. And she means miracle in the strong sense. So having that in mind, I think for me, one key question about Wei is, why did I now, I've never been deeply into Wei, and I'm very aware of all the quirky and weird things she's also into. I do agree with someone like Susan Sontag that it can't be a matter of taking everything, but it can also not be a matter of taking nothing, because she writes beautifully about for example, the dignity of work, she imagines in the book called The Need for Roots, a society in which workers would own their tools, in which they would have their own house and gardens, and they would be respected for their work. And if you think, I mean, today we've even, it, it's horrifying to see how far we capitalism has come to strip workers of even reliability of income 
it, it's like I think she would be very interested in workers' conditions today. We have new and more newfangled ways of exploiting people, zero-hour contracts, or gig work that doesn't give you enough to live on, all of which she inspires me to think of that. And I also think that she, she inspires me to think of affliction more carefully because affliction is all around us. You have the refugees who are utterly exposed to force. I think she gives us a vocabulary in which to think about this that is more challenging than just compassion, charity, and so on, which doesn't drag us out of our comfort zone. And that's where I suppose she wants, she doesn't want us to be in a comfort zone at all. And I suppose that's where I end with her. I, I found her much more thought-provoking than I had expected. And I think it has something to do with the times we live in. Because I'm asking myself, if I had done this work on very 10 years ago, would I have felt the same? Or I don't know, I, I can't tell. But it is striking that she comes as an uncompromising voice from the past that maybe we hear differently now. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the question that you put in the penultimate paragraph of the piece to all of us, thinking about it today with um, these record high temperatures in the Western um, states of the US. What sacrifices and what heroism will the climate crisis demand of us? So this is the sort of question that we do get to, like, what what does that look like? No one's really honest about what that might look like. And it's not just about sort of remembering to reuse your cup or changing your kind of um, electricity provider to a kind of green one. It's, it would be a whole new way of life. It would be, it would be getting out of the car at the motorway, state, motorway exit and changing your life all the way through. And I was thinking, how, if you thought a bit more about how Vile's work helps us get closer to trying to think through those problems and helping us work out, like, what can we make those sacrifices? What would they look like? And can we think of it as a sort of heroism in the way that she clearly did think about her own putting her ideas into practice? Well, I think, first of all, that they, a lot of A's writing has the form of notes and sketches and they're written very fast. And at the end of her life, when she writes The Need for Roots, she's like writing with intensity, but she never had at dying at 34 she didn't have the time to work out her ideas and so i read her much more as a as a source book for thinking that we all need to do and that maybe some intellectuals today can pick up and continue because the thing is we have she lived at an in a time full of war fascism invasion the holocaust uh, bombing of london when she was there and so on which made heroism and sacrifice as it were the order of the day i'm sure she felt she was talking in an idiom that was comprehensible to people around her. And I think she did. But we have come through the long post-war period in which what have we been talking about? Material comfort, higher levels of living, the idea that someone should ask the state, for example, should ask you to sacrifice anything is a sure election loser, right? The idea that, for example, just standing at the exit of the motorway and paying attention would lead quickly when it comes to climate crisis to the conclusion that we will undo the motorways and turn them into green zones and cultivate vegetables and grow trees or whatever. It's clear that she's putting on the agenda the question of sacrifice, of thinking of the greater good rather than your individual comfort. And that's hard for generations 
the generations that at least I come from, but also for younger people today. I mean, I remember when my students at Duke, this has changed a bit, but it's not long since they were just thinking, oh my God, the challenge in my life is to get a good job so I can afford a house and have the perfect American life. That, I will say, I feel that's not quite the case anymore because climate because black lives matter and so on it's it's changing but as long as we think that the point of politics is to elect politicians who will promise you that you'll be richer and stronger and better than ever at all times i think they would be horrified but isn't there some hope in vey because she actually did do what she she lived out what she thought um, and as we've said, it's not a straightforward thing, but she did. And also that we've just been through a period and we're not entirely out of it where people have made huge sacrifices for other people. And there are people, the memory will be in people's bones and where they think, the way they li- exist in the world. And shouldn't that lead to some sort of change that change can be real, I guess? You know, you just put your finger on maybe because I was writing all this during lockdown. I mean, I had to book an appointment with the library to pick up my books and, you know, you have to fill in the contagion app for Duke. You have to wear your mask, you have to sanitize, and that's just to carry out your books. I think that maybe that was unconsciously the background for opening my mind to they more. And that maybe what you're saying is that it's not just what we individually read and think, although that's crucial. It's also history, the time. So maybe the pandemic has shown that unfashionable words like sacrifice may be relevant again. And so we may be shifting, just giving the background for a mind shift. I do think that they always thought change was possible. I am still in great doubt whether her individual, almost self-torture You see, there's a difference between doing stuff, sacrificing things that would maybe give up my my big American house, live in something smaller, all this. That I could sort of see. I I would hate it, of course, but I can (laughs) sort of see it. But going to insisting on doing work you're not at all suited for and at some cost for everyone is like, doesn't strike me. I feel I have too much common sense to go for that. But I still think that what Vey is asking us to do is to examine our lives and see what can I do plausibly and not stop just at the, oh, well, I'll give some money to the next beggar. Maybe there's more we can do. Yeah, I love the way you bring that out in the piece. I think that is possible. The way you talk about why we need her is that sense of that you can change, you can live life differently. Thank you so much, Toral, for going through all of this with us, answering my questions and, and just writing this, this piece that pushes us in ways that we clearly do need to be pushed. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Toral's piece in the latest issue of the LRB online now, as well as Tom Stevenson on the British Army in Iraq and Afghanistan, Erin McGlackey on early modern books, and Joe Dunthorne on writing a branching narrative for a video game.